Peter, an, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia and Bith Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes through it, it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not, you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. So now, just uh, another quick prayer of this. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So we're starting, uh, as I said, a new series this week for the summer, and we're taking the opportunity of uh, kind of having more, more space. Our, we usually have a few less people during the summer to make this experience a little more interactive, so there will be a little bit more time to unpack uh, what you've heard tonight, if you'd like to. So the, kind of the idea is that the front three uh, tables here would be for really going in depth if you want to like process and talk through the sermon at the end. Uh, and the back three tables are just normal sit down and eat. Uh, this is also designed so you don't have to sit out in 100 degree weather to eat dinner. Uh, so that's kind of the idea tonight. So afterward, like I said, if you want to, there's going to be some questions up on the screen. If you want to unpack it a little more, sit in the front three tables. Uh, if you just want to have dinner as usual and, and talk to somebody and connect with somebody, sit in the back three, and, um, and both, both of those options are good. So as I mentioned, this series is going through First Peter in its entirety, and it's exploring the theme of being God's people, and we're calling it a compelling community, and that is a community that, that exists to bless others. And so we have this model called the outpost model. There was a slide of it up earlier, and it's this idea that we want to be out on the edge of where the Christian faith is kind of meeting people who are either um, unsure of it, maybe like thinking about leaving or, or giving up, um, but also people who would be engaging with it for the first time and thinking about maybe giving it a try. And we really want to be in that kind of space. But I think that this book, this book of First Peter and what it, what it discusses, what it's unpacking shows that really every church should be thinking in those terms to some degree. Every church should be really focusing on the type of community that it is as, as a way of thinking about the way that it's going to engage with the world around them. That's just the design of God's church as a whole. So since uh, First Peter's new to us, I want to do a quick little who, who, when, where, why before we get into the what is being said here so you know what we're talking about. So First Peter um, is by the disciple Peter. And Peter is one of the inner circle of Jesus' closest disciples, along with James and John. And he quite literally walked and lived with Jesus during the three years of Jesus' ministry. And this isn't even 
disputed historically, by the way. He just, he was obviously a close, uh, a, somebody in close relationship with Jesus. And of all the disciples who followed after Jesus, Peter's one of the most well-documented, and he's there, therefore a very reliable source of kind of Jesus' thinking and his ideas. He probably wrote this about 30 years after the ascension of Christ. And this is, um, in history, a pretty pivotal time. It's just before, in Rome, the Emperor Nero began to aggressively persecute the Christian church. And Peter was likely writing from Rome, from the, the very place where some of this stuff would have gone down. Um, and there was a large Christian community there. And Peter was probably writing from there out to smaller communities. And, and Vi read to us what those places would have been, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, which would be the Roman province of Asia, and Bithynia. So think areas like modern-day Turkey. And Paul is writing probably from the city of Rome um, out to that area, churches in that area of people. And in that area, the people in these churches were likely a mix of Jewish people um, and Greeks. And And these Jewish people would have been people who would have been dispersed out, but also uh, these believers, in a sense, were dispersed and disconnected uh, from one another. But all these people were, were pretty newly convinced within the last 20, 30 years of their life that Jesus had risen from the dead and in so doing had proved himself powerful, unique, and worth living and, and even dying for because they were really, literally at this point, about to face some of the, the most serious um, opposition to their faith that the Christian church has maybe ever seen. So Peter, who's this well-known disciple of Jesus, um, who, who they may have heard the good news from directly, they, they may have met him, is writing to encourage and instruct them because they're undergoing trials. And that's sort of where we're going to enter into this um, tonight. And Peter here is affirming their happiness or their blessedness, their hope and their joy, and he uses all those terms while simultaneously acknowledging that they are going through an experience of being what he calls exiles, Um, going through trials, experiencing grief. These are all words that he uses. Um, And I would say that these are beyond the the scope of just the normal human experience. These were an extra layer of all these things because, directly because, of their relationship to Jesus. So here's what I kind of want to share tonight, what the source of Christian joy is not, according to Peter here, and then what it is. And then I'll give you time uh, to unpack that a little bit more afterward. But... So, what it, what it isn't. What, what is not the source of Christian joy? Uh, Peter seems to bring out three things. Number one, it is not feeling at home in your culture. That's not the source. Number two, it is not being free from grief induced by trials. So, you do not get Christian joy from being free from the grief that's brought about by trials. And it's not having your faith left unchallenged. You do not get Christian joy from having unchallenged faith, okay? What do I mean by that? First of all, feeling at home in your culture. When Peter says they're like exiles, um, it's, it's highly likely, if almost not certain, that he is referring to something that, that a Jewish person would have understood very well from reading the Old Testament and from the history of their people. And that's that the people of Israel had been taken captive into other cultures And God had called them, while in those other cultures, to be distinct as his people, yet to be um, faithful to what he had always called them to, and 
to be a blessing and to work for the good of the culture around them all simultaneously. And specifically here, Peter probably has in mind the time Israel was taken captive by Babylon. And I say that because at the end, he refers to himself writing from Babylon, which didn't exist um, when he was around. And what, that, what we probably think, and this seemed to be kind of a common term, was that they would speak of their current empire, Rome in this case, under the, the phrase, or, or sorry, under that term Babylon. So he's drawing this connection between their experience now and Israel's old connection to Babylon. So at the end of 1 Peter, you'll see him refer to himself as in Babylon, which he would have meant to be Rome. Now, these people all would have been familiar with, a, with an old book, the book of Jeremiah, where God speaks to his people in a historical moment that Peter is recalling for them. And I want to read to you this this text that they would have been familiar with. Many of you will be familiar with one verse in here, especially. But here in, uh, in Jeremiah 29, this is what God says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets or your diviners who who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Quick note, these prophets, these false prophets of Israel were saying, you're going, to be, you're going to be taken out of Babylon soon. You're going to be saved soon. Jeremiah is saying, they're wrong. You're going to be here for generation after generation. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when, I, when you seek me with your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place where I, from where I sent you into exile. So back in these ancient times, God called these people who were in Babylon to remain faithful to him for a long time. For some of them, this is going to be, um, they had short lifespans. This might have been multiple generations when he says 70 years. And he's saying to remain faithful to me, seek me, but also seek the welfare of this place that is not your home and is in fact antagonistic to you. And this is a difficult balance. And it can only be done when you trust that God is going to fulfill the promises that he's made. So if Peter had this in mind, which he likely does, he's saying to the people that he was writing to, these new Christians, um, you won't feel at home in some sense, in this, in your culture, in all these different cities. And I think he's saying the same thing to us, but you're gonna invest like you are in another sense. You're gonna invest in this, in this culture, even though it's not your home. And you need to understand that both of these are true simultaneously. In other words, the place where you buy a house, raise kids, make friends, find your favorite restaurant, start a business, will not, because of being a Christian, feel entirely like home. You'll have to be distinct and a little strange, almost like you're from another country. 
So secondly, Peter says, not only that, not only will you not feel at home, but you're going to be grieved by trials. It's pretty clear that he's not just talking about the, the trials that are common to all people, like you know, losing a family member or a friend or struggling to provide or with your physical health or obstacles. He's, he's talking about additional trials or extra layers of trial brought about by being identified with Jesus. Um, this would be perhaps on top of all those normal trials of life, exclusion from certain conversations or groups, um, enduring mockery of some form, being sidelined um, in public opinion or misunderstood for the way that you think about something because of your relationship with Jesus. But these people, he's, he's told them, he said, you are joyful people, and they're exceedingly joyful people. So their joy must not be conditioned on feeling at home or by the absence of trials and trials specifically coming because of Jesus, because the source of their joy is also the cause for the trial. You see that? Their relationship with Jesus, their faith, is the source of their joy while also the cause of the trial that they're going through. It's both. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but to have one thing you love, often you have to lose something that you like very much. You notice that? Um, for those of us who've, you know, had like long, longer term relationships that have lasted for a bit and have demanded something of you, maybe it's a dating relationship, maybe it's a marriage, um, you might love this person, but you also have to sacrifice something, right? There's a bit of autonomy that you have to lay down that most of us like. Autonomy is nice, right? It's nice to do whatever you want on any given night. That's great. Um, any of us who've invested in our health, right? Um, last, just last night, I had to look at hot dogs and cheeseburgers and eat just the meat with some salsa on top. Um, I like full cheeseburgers and I like fries and chips. Um, but I don't like having 30 more pounds attached to me right here, which is what was happening not too long ago. So I have to sacrifice something I like for something that seems to be of more value, right? Um, some, many of us like to travel, but we also like to have money. And there's sort of a tension, because if you're going to have money, traveling seems to suck it away, right? And so if you love going and seeing new places, you will have less money. It's just, there's always this trade-off, right? The, the better job might involve you having to work harder and be more focused. Do you want that better job that pays more money? Are you willing to invest? There's always this trade-off. To have this deep joy, you may have to sacrifice something you or anyone in the world would prefer to have. The question is, is it worth it? Is the trade-off worth it? And that, that is the question that we come to when, it, when we're faced with this idea of our relationship with Jesus. There will be a trade-off. There will be losses. Is it worth it? That's the question we're being asked. And finally, Peter says that their faith, um, their, their source of joy is not in the fact that their faith isn't challenged. In fact, their faith is being tested daily. The trials they're experiencing as exile-type people are causing, he says, the genuineness of their faith to come into question. In other words, their faith is getting challenged by what they're going through and they're still full of joy. That's surprising, right? Perhaps it was indirectly. Perhaps it was 
that as they went through difficult things, it caused them to think inwardly, you know, do I believe that a God with a good plan has the power to accomplish what he said he would accomplish when my experience shows that these other things aren't going well? Or, as I've heard it many times phrased by, by some of us here in this community, I think God might have a good plan, but might that good plan mean he's going to be mean to me or do difficult things to me? How can I guarantee that I will be happy? Hmm? So trials that we go through, um, when filtered through the lens of faith, can actually become the sources of big questions. They can make us really think about who God is and our relationship to him, our trust in him, and they, they really can indirectly. But, but then there's the even more direct version of that in which people back in their day, as they are in ours, can be literally mocked for their faith, right? The oldest image we have, you know, of Jesus, and Ray's going to put this up for me, is of someone being mocked. This is the, this is the oldest image we have in the world of Jesus Christ. Um, it was found um, underneath a, a Roman building. It was part of a school at the time, they believe, a school for young boys. So this is, uh, this is a piece of graffiti in this underground children's school. And what it says is, it's a picture of another boy. It says, Alexa Menes is worshiping his God. And what it is, is Jesus Christ portrayed as an ass on a cross. And this was a little boy mocking his friend for worshiping the man who died on the cross. That's the oldest image we have of Jesus, right? And a direct challenge like that makes you think. Um, it does. We act like, we can act like it doesn't, but everyone knows if when you get defensive, when your faith is questioned, what does that mean? What does it mean? What's the bully on the playground? When he gets defensive, what does it mean? It means he's insecure, right? And so often in the church, we get defensive, and people do get under our skin. And what that means, if we could just admit it, is that we do have our questions, right? We do have our insecurities. I'm sure this little boy with the, the, the image, I'm sure he didn't just go home and go like, yeah, I do, I do worship Jesus. I'll bet that hurt him, right? I'll bet he wondered if the man who died on the cross really rose from the dead in that moment. And, and that's honest, and that's real. Um, it would be so nice if those things went away. It really would. It'd be nice if people weren't calling your faith into question, but joy would not come from the absence of that challenging of your faith. That's what Peter's saying. That would not bring you into joy. It wouldn't even bring you into faith. Peter sees, sees it as the opposite. He says to have your faith challenged is actually where it gets refined. That's hard to deal with. It's very wearisome. It's difficult, but it's actually where your faith gets refined. Peter mentions that gold is tested by fire, and similarly, our faith is tested. And we know that fire isn't just how you tell if gold is gold. It's also where gold can be purified and reshaped. And the word here in the Greek for testing contains the idea of a purpose in the testing, as in a testing that is for the purpose of an approval of that fine product, of the gold. And what that means is what Peter is saying is this testing of your faith 
is not where your faith would fall apart. It's where it would get shaped and refined and become better. And he actually suggests that this testing is God's work and it's loving and it's good. I think often when we think of the testing of our faith, we think of like Veruca Salt in you know, Willy Wonka and she gets put on the scales to see if she's a bad egg, right? That's the test, like are you a bad egg? But that's not what Peter is talking about. This test is meant to actually develop the best characteristics of their faith. That's why he's bringing it about. That's why it's happening. That's what Peter is teaching. That's why you could have joy as a result of your faith being challenged. So one of Jesus' closest disciples here is telling us, you should not expect to find joy as a Christian by feeling at home with your, in your culture. In fact, you should expect not to feel at home. You will not find joy by being free from the grief that comes because of trials, um, because of your faith in Jesus. In fact, you should expect to deal with that pain. And you should not expect to find joy as a Christian from being unchallenged in your faith indirectly or directly via criticism or doubt because God has actually designed these things and purposed them in your life for the development of your faith. Now, think about this. How often do we try to find joy in exactly those things Peter said we would not find it in, right? Either by trying to make our culture conform to our faith or by trying to dull the edges of our faith so that our cultural companions feel like we conform to their paradigms. Or so often we mute our faith so we won't experience grief. Or we insulate ourselves from those who have different faiths or hard questions because we don't want to have the hard conversations that would make us defensive and unsure. And so often we avoid situations in which our faith would be challenged. Or we, we consider this a sign that maybe we should move on from our faith and duck out from our faith Duck out actually of the good and refining work of wrestling through our faith and acknowledging our doubts. And Peter's saying, you will not find joy in any of these methods. You may get what you like in avoiding them, but you will not get what you love or what you should value the most. You will not find joy. So Peter... Um, is talking about this faith, this, this thing, this joy, this happiness. It must be superior to having all these other preferences, all these other things we love, all the comforts, the unchallenged faith. It must be, it must be superior and it must be very substantial. So what is it that brings us this joy? Where does it come from? And Peter is very clear. Here's what he said. According to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this, you rejoice. So, a living hope. What is that? In this context, what Peter is talking about is the person, the living hope is the person who is alive, who has risen from the dead, who has ascended. He's speaking specifically 
of Jesus. And so the inheritance that we would receive is the inheritance that Jesus inherited specifically. Peter says it's kept in heaven. And I think sometimes when we read that, we think it's like delayed until heaven or it's a heavenly thing that we will get some other time, some other day. But that's not what that means. It's, it's not only spiritual. It is spiritual, but not only spiritual. It is not disconnected. What this means is that Jesus, who ascended to the eternal plane of existence, is the one who is guarding it and keeping it because he has ascended heavenly means that it is safe because of his ascension, because of his power, because of his ability. And he is guarding us through our faith, meaning he uses the faith in us to guard us from his position of power and authority so that we will receive the inheritance that he has received. This means that the trials that make our faith better are part of Jesus' strategy to guard our hearts and keep us from worshiping anything else. Since he uses our faith to guard us and the trials to improve our faith, it means that he is actively involved in developing our faith through all of the situations that we face. So the the fact that this salvation is kept in heaven doesn't mean it's a future thing. It's a thing that's guaranteed by Jesus's ascension and his power. And what is the salvation? Well, remember Jesus, uh, sorry, Peter was referring back to their previous experience of being exiles. And this salvation is similar to that. It's a returning home into the presence of God Now, in the past times, they were thinking about returning to a city, Jerusalem, where their temple was and rebuilding. It wasn't a disconnected and ethereal reality. They saw it as very real. They would go back to where they built their houses, to the place where they told their stories, where their favorite things were, where they ate their favorite foods. And the temple was where God dwelt in their center, in the center of them, and they had access to God through the priesthood. And our salvation is similar to that, but greater, because in Jesus' resurrection, due to the purpose of his death, which was that he was substituting his righteous self for our unrighteous selves to give us access to God, this means that the access to God that we would have would be even greater in Jesus than anything they had ever experienced. And therefore, the salvation that we would experience would be even more thorough than anything they would have experienced in those days. In the old Jerusalem, the people had access through the mediator or the priest because of his work to being righteous before God, to him hearing their prayers. But in the promised new Jerusalem, the access is through Jesus, the great high priest, who didn't bring a sacrifice that worked for an afternoon, but he brought himself, his life as a sacrifice which is sufficient to forgive me and you once for all. Now, you might be thinking at this point, and I think I could even be thinking this, wow, that sounds like a lot of jargon and theology, right? And I'm disconnecting from this. Like, what is this about? I know it's a lot of theology, but consider this. I'm gonna gonna bring it down to the practical plane because it is very practical. Practical. 
The work of Jesus was done because we aren't good enough for God or each other. We're not. And we sense this deeply. Do you ever feel not good enough? I don't know how many times I've heard people say in the, in the darkest moment just how disappointed with themselves they are. And do you know what I, what I think when I hear that? I think me too, right? Do you ever feel not good enough? Well, in Jesus, we can be made right and righteous. And we can even change in very practical ways. Imagine if I could tell you this, that your disappointment with yourself or your guilt could actually be lifted and you could become better, but not because you were doing better or doing so well, but because the love of God had been so poured out upon you that it was dispelling all of the doubts of your heart. In Jesus, that's exactly what can happen. That is what he came to do. The work of Jesus was done to bring us near to God. Our created purpose is relationship. I talked just a little bit ago about relationships that you have to give up something to be in one that is very important to you. Um, Look, I hang out with you guys. You all are in relationships or want to be in them or want to be in another one or something. It's constant. Either you want the, the big friendship or you want to be married or you want someone to notice you or you, heck, you want somebody to notice you at work, anything. You just want relationships. So do I, right? Every relationship that we want is evidence that we were made for relationship, but every relationship that we get disappoints us to some degree. What if you could have a relationship that fulfilled your desire for relationship and made you able to be in imperfect relationships wholeheartedly because they didn't have to fulfill you? How good would that be? And in Jesus, you can. That's exactly what he came to do. This isn't just religious and impractical. These truths can deeply transform you internally. They can reorient your approach to life. I want to show you an illustration that I use in, like, any time I meet with somebody for kind of pastoral advice or especially in premarital counseling. If you thought that graffiti in Rome was bad, check this out. This, this is me. Jake just had to hear this one just the other day. Um, So this is an illustration that comes from Dr. Larry Crabb, but it illustrates exactly what I'm trying to say to you right now. This is about relationships. I tend to use this when somebody is planning to get married. That's Jake's situation, which is exciting. Pumped for Jake. Um, But when you're planning to get married, you're going to face something, and that's that the the two of you are going to have to, um, and this is true of any relationship, but let's use marriage for the moment. Um, The two of you, to have a good and healthy relationship, are going to have to move toward each other in very risky moments. Um, So risky moments are those ones where um, perhaps you could be rejected, um, or you could actually be just unseen, you could be missed, um, or the the person, maybe you're about to hit a soft spot for them, and you're going to have to deal with some some hurt, some anger that, that comes back at you. And, and it's hard to move forward into those situations. And so what people tend to do, myself included, is you just don't move forward because you're scared of the repercussion of e- either their failures or their flaws or whatever. And so you don't move toward the other person and you feel distant. And the relationship starts to feel like it's, it's kind of coming apart. So how, what do you do about that? Like, what do you, what do you do? And Crab's analogy is a lot of times we're facing, and that this is like this chasm and those are spikes 
And it's like, this is the pain you're trying to avoid. I don't want to feel this hurt of rejection. This feels like the worst, and I can't deal with it anymore. And it feels like if I move toward this person, um, that is possible. That could happen. And what he said is, how, do, how does God factor into that? Well, he said, imagine that there's a stake driven so deeply in the ground that it cannot be moved, um, and that there's a rope that tethers you to that stake. It's absolutely tight, and it's, and it's sure, and it's dependable. But it, it isn't being tested. It's like it's loose. The rope is just laying on the ground. You can't feel its force. And he said, this is our relationship with, with the Lord. This is our relationship with God. And actually, in the very moment, um, so, so when somebody fails you, the worst thing that can happen when you have a relationship with Jesus that, that fulfills your soul to where you're as accepted as you could ever be accepted, and you're as seen as you could ever be seen, is that the worst thing that could happen would be that you fall off that cliff, the person fails you, and the rope catches you, and you don't hit the spikes. So you don't die, and not only do you not die, but you become more aware of what God is providing you than ever. It gets tight, and it catches you, and you see the power and the love of God more than you do when you're on the safe side of the illustration, see? This is kind of what, what Peter is telling us about, these trials, these hardships, um, is that they are actually the moments where you experience faith the deepest. And so that's why God might actually design them and plan them to be a part of their life. It makes us people who can be extremely resilient, extremely tenacious, extremely hopeful, extremely committed in, in very deep ways. It reminds me of kind of the tenacity of a cactus. I just, I had a weird little um, moment. Ray's going to put up a picture for you now of one of my favorite cactus in Tucson. Have you, have you guys seen that one on 5th, like where 5th is turning into the 6th? I love, I love roof cactus. I've taken Jared and Danielle have a cool one. I've got photos of it. Um, they're like my favorite thing. This one's ultimate. This is like top of dead palm tree cactus. But think about, here, here's the thing about a cat, like here's the incredible thing, here's why people study him and flock to Arizona to check him out. For all of us who were born here, we're like, yeah, 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 they're everywhere. But other people, they're, you know, they wanna see these things so bad. What's so amazing though is that they can exist in the most unlikely and difficult environments because of the deep reserves of water that they have stored up and the deep protection that they have all around them that keeps them from harm, from being eaten alive. Um, and, and the cool thing about this is the way it sort of illustrates my point is how much it doesn't fit in and how strange it looks, right? It's, it's hilarious. When you drive by it, you're like, why is there a cactus growing out of the top of that palm tree? Like, are they going to cut that down or do they understand just how cool this thing is? Um, and I think they do. Um, but, I mean, how much water does it, pools up there for, like zero, there's no way. It's just like feeding off the inside of a dead palm tree. It's actually kind of gnarly. But the prickly pear can live through these situations because it has these deep reserves, this deep resilience. I mean, you can literally chop them up and they will drop to the ground and grow again and multiply. Like the more you cut it up and damage it, the more it's gonna multiply and grow. And that can be true of us because of the depth and the power of what Christ has done for us. Like we can be the one, and then 
I think just like I noticed this crazy cactus, I think that's the way that the church can look. The church isn't supposed to look like, ah, it fits in perfectly. The church is supposed to be something that people look at and they say, how in the world is it that they don't quit? Like, how, is, how in the world is it that they keep loving in the face of so much hate and being despised? How is it that despite their lack of, like, resources and stuff, that they keep doing what nobody else will do? Like, how, how does this occur? That's how the church actually shows off the power of God. Not by fitting in, not by being free from trouble or trial or grief, but by actually sustaining in the midst of it. Such is true and much more true of us than any cactus or any little illustration could ever show. So when Jesus was here, he took an ancient feast, the Passover, and this is a, this is a moment in the people of Israel's history where they were spared and delivered from Egypt And he applied to this to himself in his coming death and resurrection. For those who have um, partaken in this, those who have partaken of this in history have never really fit. Even when Jesus taught about it, you will need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, people said, what are you, you're, you're off your rocker. It's a strange place to place your hope in a condemned man's death. The imagery of it is uneasy. It requires a belief in guilt and sin, it implies a need for mercy and forgiveness, but it also asserts a living hope that can feel too good to be true at the same time. It is uniquely and utterly Jesus-centered. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Remember me. And then he took the cup of wine from the table, the symbol of both punishment and plenty, the, the drink of weddings and feasts. And he said, this is a new covenant promise ratified by my blood when I entered the sanctuary or the temple. And it guarantees your forgiveness and the forgiveness of many. He declared to you, I'm gonna drink this again with you someday when I return in the new city, in the new Jerusalem. And we're to remember and declare his death until he returns and brings the exiles back into the great city of Jerusalem. Not just an ethereal existence, something that we're going to connect with. It'll feel like home. It can be hard to believe, and it is. But it's utterly life-transforming. It's a faith that can anchor us amidst any trial. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved it was possible and it was worth everything that we might lose to have it. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, and then there's going to be two minutes of silence. And then um, during our singing at the end, I'll be up here to serve you the Lord's Supper. Um, you can come individually, or you could come as a table. Um, come however you want. You can come in groups if you'd like. Um, and, and come and receive what he's done for you, what, are, what he's offering you, but contemplate how much it costs, how much it costs to him and how much it really would cost to each of us to really truly hold that this kingdom is our home. After we take the Lord's Supper and sing together, uh, we always have giving in the back. That's how you take care of us and this church. But we're also gonna take care of you by serving you dinner. And we hope that you'll 
think about these things and apply them a little more. I have, I have three questions we'll put up on the screen for any of you who want to go a little deeper on this, and that is, what type of challenge or trial do you find yourself trying to avoid, and how do you try to avoid it? Um, do you have any stories of suffering that have been worth it in your life, and what were those? And then, how about in your faith? And how have those trials actually served God's purposes in your life? And hopefully by telling each other these stories, we'll be fed spiritually, not just on what the Bible says, but by what the Spirit of God has done in the lives of the church. So I'm going to pray and leave two minutes of silence. That's time for you to just speak to the Lord. You could, um, you could confess sin. Um, you could thank God for something. You could just tell God how you're really feeling. Even if you're not sure you believe in him, just give it a try. So after I pray, that time is for you to come before God. Father, thank you for the chance to come before you and worship this evening. Each of us is at a different place. For some of us, this idea of faith probably seems a bit, um, a bit disconnected. Maybe, maybe we're having a hard time seeing how it applies to our lives. For others of us, this is, uh, this is deeply familiar. For some of us, it's so familiar that sometimes we forget the real implications, and we need to be reminded just how important this really is to our day-to-day -day lives. For some of us, this is new and fresh, and we're just enjoying it, and we thank you. God, as we come before you, wherever we are, I pray that we would know that we can speak to you. You're gracious. You're merciful. You are the safest place for us to come, even with the darkest sins of our hearts. You love to forgive, and you'd love to hear our voice. So give us the boldness to approach your throne. We pray this now as we come before you.